Well, hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Brand Builder Show. It is a great honor and privilege to have Brian on the show with us today. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Oh, I'm so excited to dive into the journey of Simple Modern, this uh, you know crazy big company that you have co-founded and uh, going to be picking loads of thoughts uh, up in this episode and trying to learn as much as we can. Got uh, loads of questions for you, had some questions submitted from the Twitter family as well. We got some, uh, some real good questions to grill you with today. Uh, but f- before we get into that, can you give us a little bit of a background on yourself, who you are, your journey up until the point of launching simple modern maybe a bit of a you know background on on what you're doing and then we'll dive into the whole simple modern journey after that yeah absolutely well first i'll I'll introduce um, simple modern and my role with the company um yeah those who aren't familiar um we are primarily an adult and kid drinkware company um we make products for the entire family but drinkware is is where we have had our most distribution um, we started in 2015. Um, I co-founded the company alongside Mike Beckham, who's the CEO, and Micah Ames, who's our chief products officer. Um, and yeah, we uh, as of this year, we, we project to do over 8 million units. Um, and the next year, we actually think that we may double. So we've been riding a wave of um, just hyper growth, pretty much the existence of the company um, but we're getting to a scale where it's it's a different ball game for sure. The nominal amount of units is is getting um, to be pretty big. So uh, a bit of a background on um, how we launched in 2015 and for myself. Um, out of college, I worked at a company called Quibids. We um, launched in 2010. And that's that's when I graduated. We um, experienced hyper growth with that company. It was actually founded by um, Mike and his brother Matt. So okay. I, I knew Mike previously, and we worked together for about seven years on that project. And um, we really saw just the scale that online advertising can provide. We had just an enormous gap between our customer acquisition cost and um, lifetime values at the start of the company. In 2010, internet marketing, digital advertising was completely different than it is now. Yeah, very different. A lot more um, saturation now than there was then. So we we benefited greatly from that. Um, the business is an, was an auction. I guess is it still it still exists. Um, it's an auction business, so you can tell a really big saving story, and it's great for marketing. Um, so we we had an epic ride up, and really kind of what happened with that business is that um, saturation started to happen with our advertising. Customer acquisition costs came up, um, so really the unlimited marketing budget that we had uh, became limited, and that combined with um, just a it's a hard model to retain users with. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of attrition of, of cohorts. So eventually when your uh, existing users don't show up anymore and new users are harder to come by, it's um, you know pretty obvious what's gonna happen. So um, that really formulated a lot of our thought process around advertising and it really shifted our perspective to 
um, wanting to create products um, instead of a platform because we sure. we liked that products was something that added value to the world. It's uh, you know if, if we can make someone's day a little bit better with our product, we want to do that. Um, it's tangible, and um, you know advertising you're just giving money to the advertisers we want to pass along value to the customers so um it was a great introduction to e-commerce we launched other websites we built algorithms it really prepared us to launch products on amazon um, there's nothing better than to, to understanding how the amazon algorithm works than writing an algorithm yourself so um, that was a precursor to simple modern and, and really um, the reason why we started it is that uh, Mike, Micah, and I, we are really after the same things personally. We, we want to be the best people we can be. We value growth personally and professionally. We want to be great husbands, dads. And really, I, I wanted Mike and Mike are, are two guys that I just want to be like. So if I get more time around them, I'll, I'll handcuff myself to them as much as possible. So... Yeah. Um, I, I think the feeling was mutual, which is why we started the side project that became Simple Modern. Yeah, and and I think that's really evident, you know, in your your Twitter content, is the personal drive to grow, to be good leaders. It's not just about here's a hack to help you sell more units on Amazon. It's actually how do we build a good company? How do we build a great team? How do we be good leaders in that company so i think that's evident for us all to see and uh, you know we're all watching the journey and, and loving to you know to follow you in that so um thank you for for sharing your journey in that respect and uh you know i know there's there's so much that we could go into here and we're going to try and you know cover as many of the uh, of the sort of topics as we can in the, in this time together but you talked about your experience uh, with algorithms and with different sort of forms of advertising you know what was it particularly though about the uh, the market for drinkware that caused you to start simple modern because you you could have started anything you know back then but what was it in particular that caused you to to start there well um we we view ourselves more as a channel first company than a product first company we didn't okay. have a, a dream one night that vacuum insulated drinkware was underserved and we needed to make that product. Um, we believed in our ability to sell on Amazon first. And so what we did is we casted a wide net with launching um, about 10 different products on Amazon and um, just testing what did the best. And out of the things that did the best, is there a way for us to um, meet an area of the market that's currently not met? And um, the, the TLDR is that, you know, obviously bottles, vacuum insulated bottles were the products um, that we, we found our way into, but there, there were several other products that did well. Um, instead of doing a lot of things well, we wanted to do one thing great. And since we were limited with our resources, our capital, we decided to walk away from the other things that were profitable and just invest solely into bottles. Yeah, which is a learning in itself. And I would definitely like to get to some of those scaling conversations, capital intensive, uh, you know, discussions a bit later on, because that's something I think a lot of people will want to hear about. When you talk about finding uh, that opportunity in the market, what was it in particular that you found 
you know, with, with drinks, but without obviously wanting to give away, you know, too many uh, trade secrets. Um, but uh, what? Because it's a, a relatively generic product. Obviously, 2015 was a, a long time ago in the Amazon space, so saturation, quote unquote, was, it was not like it is now. It wasn't maybe as competitive, but still, there were bottles on the market. There was drink containers on the market. What was it that you guys saw as the opportunity there? Well, to your point, I think the bottle is probably one of the first things ever invented, uh, maybe along with the wheel. So there's nothing, nothing new there. Uh, the observation that we made was that, and, and, and we're open, obviously, if you, you can tell by my Twitter, we want to be open source and, and really helpful mm. to other people. So um, the, uh, the observation that we made was that uh, bottles are more similar to like a watch or shoes, something that you take out with you to like the gym or um, on a road trip or, or wherever. And you you want it to look nice or you want it to reflect part of your personality, match your clothes. Uh, maybe you want a logo on it for your favorite team. Um, it's, it's, so there's a heavy ornamentation component to the product. And um, what we saw in 2015 was that there were comp great competitors like Yeti and Hydro Flask and Contigo who had great distribution. Um, there were other competitors like man manufacturers selling on Amazon at the lowest price that they can sell it at. There wasn't really anything in between those two. So um, whenever we looked at the high, high price competitors like Yeti, they're optimized for physical shelf space. So they're not going to have the vast assortment. Um, they're going to be incentivized to go very deep in inventory because the empty shelf space is uh, the worst thing for them. Uh, so online, obviously, there's no constraints to digital shelf space. And we found that the more ornamentations that we piled into a listing, the better that was for our conversion rates, the better chance there was for a customer to find what they wanted. Um, not only that, but adding more ornamentations into our listing provided um, more doors to our listing to, to get clicked into. Mm -hmm. So yep. if we're the only company selling a yellow water bottle on Amazon and you search yellow water bottle, we're going to get 100% of that market. It's a small market, but we're going to get all of it. So yeah. um, what we did is we, <laughs> we, we realized that the limits to Amazon showing swatches instead of the drop down for colors was 45 colors. So we took it right to the line for... <laughs> I love that. that. That's really what we did with our capitals. We, we expanded uh -huh. as much as we could into colors and sizes. And sure enough, that um, was reflecting their organic placements. We found ourselves at the top of search terms like water bottle, water bottle straw. Um, so early on, that was, that was the strategy. And interestingly, um, what, what happened over time was as we gained volume, the incentive turned a little bit to where being out of stock in our best skew was more damaging than not having our, our worst 10 colors. So we, we kind of experienced as we scaled up kind of the, the Yeti problem of you don't go out of stock in your best skews. So yeah. we actually kind of shrank back our assortment to like more like 25 to 30 different colors, still plenty to choose from, but we're able to, to be in stock better. Yeah. 
Uh, one question that comes to mind is about the breaking point of that conversion rate, because I've heard it said before, offer too many variations and it can affect your conversion rate negatively. I suppose for bottles, when it's very much the same product, just a different color, it sounds like you guys didn't experience that. Um, we, yes, we, um, we test around decision fatigue a lot. Uh, we know that we can push customers to just um, be overwhelmed with the amount of options we have. And we experienced that a lot in our kids' listings, especially because we're licensed with Disney and Frozen, Star Wars, Marvel. We have non-licensed patterns. We, we have over 100 different colors of a kid's bottle or, or pattern. So um, we're constantly breaking those out into different listings to see how they uh, place, how they convert on their own. Because if you're interested in a Star Wars kid's bottle, it doesn't matter if we have Frozen and um, you know any other ornamentation in there. You're only interested in Star Wars and mm -hmm. being able to see all the options within Star Wars is important. So especially with licensing, I, I think you're right that decision fatigue can negatively impact our conversion rates. Um, and we, we've seen like there are SKUs that we offer um, where if our swatch looks more enticing than our main image, it actually drags down our, our listing as a whole. And so we, we look at um, what is the percentage of orders coming from a SKU compared to the percentage of glance views. And if a SKU is way underperforming on orders compared to glance views, that's an indication that it's harmful to our conversion rate. And customers are, they're, they're only clicking around so much in a listing before they buy. So we don't want any drag in our listings. Yeah. You did a, a great Twitter thread on that, which I definitely recommend people checking out because it was um, you know, lots of good info in there. Um, you, you might have said before, but so just to clarify, your, your your role in the company, is it marketing specific? So my role in the company is over all of our digital sales. Um, okay. And as I mentioned, Mike is, is the CEO and Micah is our chief products officer. We have yeah. now a, um, a physical sales role that's outside of my scope i'm just focused on our digital sales great and as a percentage how much of your uh, volume would come from amazon well uh, it started off as 100 percent. obviously we have worked it down to being this year is the first year it's going to be less than half of our revenue uh, wow and it's not because our, our amazon business is shrinking it's because our physical retail business is exploding um, so a little bit of a shot to my pride, but I'm, I'm happy for that, for that diversification <laughs> to happen. <laughs> yeah. As long as the gross volume is still going up, you know, even if the percentage is coming down. Yeah, it's okay. absolutely. It's, it, it's a great sign of brand strength though, isn't it as well? So, um, do you get much volume through the, your own website or is it just those two channels? Our website has grown at a faster rate than Amazon the last few years. Really when the pandemic hit is when that really started to be true. Uh, mm. At this point, we're about 10% of our Amazon sales for our website. So, and our, our goal sure. is to continue growing it to be a higher percentage. Mm. Yeah, I was doing a, a little bit of research before the, the episode, and you guys have got really good branded search uh, metrics. You know, Google, there's a lot of search for Simple Modern, and um, which is, a, again, another great sign that the branding on Amazon is having an impact off of Amazon. So, um, yeah, it's, that's good. And then in terms of global marketplaces, uh, heavily in the US, or is there much global stuff happening? 
We are solely in North America. It's possible to buy our products in Europe, uh, but you're going to pay a lot to get it over there. Mm. Um, we actually had big plans prior to the pandemic to um, launch. Really, we were we got a lot of traction in Europe. We were about we were up to about uh, five million in revenue in Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. We were strategizing on how to take that to 10 million the next year pandemic hits brexit hits um it it basically crushed our our european business along with mass retail exploding for us we decided to put resources there Um, although it's actually an initiative of mine this year um, to start that endeavor back up for europe canada um, and we're looking to make partnership with amazon in 1p instead of the marketplace uh, because we've had a lot of success with being a 1P vendor in Amazon in the U.S. Yeah. Do you, you do 1P and 3P in the U.S.? We are 99% 1P. Um, at first, we thought maybe we would try both, but we just realized that it's better for us to be all in on 1P. Mm-hmm. And how would that be for someone like myself who doesn't have much experience with 1P and for probably a lot of our listeners that are very much along the third-party seller lines, what differences would that be for you guys? What what benefits do you gain from being a first-party seller to Amazon? Uh, Wow. We we could probably do a whole podcast about that question alone. (laughs) Um, But the difference is that we are selling to Amazon in the same way we sell to Target. They're buying our inventory from us with POs. We ship it to, to, to them. We fulfill their POs. They own the inventory in their warehouses. And the customer buys from them instead of, you know, in the marketplace, how FBA is just holding the inventory and customers buy it from you. So um, the, the benefits for us have been that it's added stability to the business. Um, there are definitely downsides where we have lost uh, flexibility with pricing, with running deals. We have to be a lot more planned now. Um, but it's impossible for us to get our account suspended, which is great because that was always viewed as like a potential kill shot. It's not likely, yeah. but it's possible. Uh, we actually had a, a, a near death experience with that. That's a pretty epic story. Um, but yeah. We, uh, it, it forced us to touch all of our inventory. We were sending tons of products straight from China to FBA. Now we have to flow all of the inventory through our, per, like our own supply chain domestically, um, which advanced the company forward in ways that we just had not been pushed to do. And it really kind of set the table for us to partner with Target and Walmart operationally. Um, and, and really the other thing that it provided that we wanted desperately was we didn't want the black box that, that the marketplace can be. We wanted people that we could talk to that work at Amazon, that we could actually partner with them instead of just being under the jurisdiction of seller, um, seller compliance. Um, we, we wanted to work together with them on how to make our business better. And that, that's really what we've gotten with 1P. Yeah, definitely. What are the economics of it as well? If they place a PO, does that mean they're paying up front? What kind of terms do you get with them? So we set the economics up to be even with our economics in the marketplace. Um, the, the biggest difference is that in the marketplace, you pay a nominal fulfillment fee. In 1P, Amazon gets a 
a wholesale cost and they get accruals that are pretty much a percentage of sales. So as your ASP goes up, um, there, you, you need to adjust your pricing accordingly. If you want to be making the same economics since they're making a percentage of sales, um, shipping becomes less of an expense, um, for higher price items. So you can make it a push with marketplace ec economics. You just need to uh, be diligent and Amazon's going to push you to give them more and, you know, it's better for them that we're healthy profitability wise. So yeah. we, we need to have firm boundaries and we haven't had any situations that have been um, untenable with Amazon so far with like terms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, like I say, I've, I've never, never done first party. And so it's all very new to me, but we've uh, had some POs from like Chewy, for example, and you know, you would place, they would place those and we send them and, and then there's like a lump sum payment on net 30 terms. So you said there, there is a lump sum for that stock or they still pay per unit as it sells? Uh, yes. Yes. They, they uh, pay us whenever they, they, they PO. We have payment terms that are net 75 days. Okay. So actually get paid 75 days after that's definitely a worse than the marketplace where you can get paid mm. every other week but we're able to to get debt financing for that which yeah yeah makes it workable yeah for sure cool all right no it's just interesting to understand how that works good good um when you were growing simple modern the first year two years was there ever a point where you just realize this is going to be huge did you always think that from the start or was there a kind of you know a point where you thought okay this is gonna be big i i think our expectations are constantly evolving they started off as let's pay for our own salaries because <laughs> um, we started off it, it was a night job um we we had day jobs and we you know talked to china at night did everything at night and it took about a year for us to actually quit our jobs. So that was step number one. And we, we never dreamed that it would be as big as it is today. So every, gosh, oh, there's data points throughout each year where we kind of reset our expectations. And I've learned that my brain cannot really comprehend like exponential growth um, mm. in, in the way that we've experienced it. There was a period where we had three leases on three different offices because we kept outgrowing offices. <laughs> uh, and we tried to get it the shortest terms as possible on our offices, but we still ended up with, you know, empty buildings we were paying for. Um, but it, it's really helped. Mike, Mike Beckham is, is very much living in the future. Uh, vision is one of his many strengths. So he, he did a great job of being, you know, six months a year out in front of where we were headed, which is really what you have to have to prepare for doubling every year, or, you know, 50% growth. Um, mm. Things are constantly changing in terms of headcounts and um, the ability to buy the inventory to support the sales. So mm. the answer is yes, a lot of times we've kind of realized um, this is different than what we expected but there wasn't like a defining moment where like, oh man, this, this is going to be a, um, a leader in hydration globally. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned some of the, the pressures there of, of growth because growth doubling every year sounds exciting until you've got to deal with the cash flow, you know, the, the hours, the, the manufacturing even, you know, you must have hit some 
challenges with manufacturing growing at that rate? Yes, we have. Um, our strategy with manufacturing has been to partner on a very deep level with one manufacturer, which has worked very well. Um, there is a downside to that where there's a lot of risk. And if that one manufacturer decides to um, not um, be aligned with, with what we're doing anymore, but um, we, we've really cultivated that relationship. Um, we don't want any of our partnerships to be just transactional. We want it to be relational. We want to know them. We work with them every day. So we, we value them and um, they reciprocate. So it's it's really been that partnership has, has fueled our growth and it's the only way that we could have done it. Um, and they, our manufacturers had a growth mindset along with us in a way where, you know, they, we're, we're their biggest vendor and whenever we're doubling year over year, they have to buy uh, much more equipment. So they have to hire up for it. They have to execute on it along with us. So um, I, I wouldn't necessarily advise everyone to just have one manufacturer, but if you find a manufacturer that's excellent and you trust them, there are benefits to scaling up just with that one partner. Mm, definitely, definitely. The uh, On the subject of manufacturing, I, I saw Mike talk about the potential or the progress you guys are making with manufacturing in the U.S., having machinery made and shipped over that kind of thing any other sort of uh, background you can give us on that how that's going and, and what kind of started that process <laughs> absolutely um so yes we've we've bought about five million dollars worth of machinery um, we're Sheesh. headquartered in oklahoma city and we we found a warehouse about a hundred thousand square foot warehouse where we're putting these machines and our plan is to start with uh production for plastics plastic bottles um that is a, a much easier um, bite to take than steel manufacturing. And um, with plastic bottles, we sell gallon Triton plastic bottles. Shipping those across the sea, you're basically shipping a box full of air. It's just this really big box that's super yeah. light. So you're paying much more in shipping than you are in product costs whenever you make it in China. And so it makes, it makes a lot of sense to make that product here. Um, other benefits to it are that we can reduce the amount of inventory we're carrying and make more product just in time. We can react to sales if they're going well, if they're going poorly. Um, we're selling these in Walmart and um, if they go out of stock in Walmart and we don't have any in our supply chain, it takes four months to get it back on shelves. So if we can make it here, we can possibly get it to them in maybe three or four weeks. So, and then once we're able to spin that up, it's just going to open up a lot more opportunities for us within plastics. And our plan is to get into to everything, steel, plastic. Um, we make, we, we sell a lot of kids' backpacks. Um, so we are leaning into it and we, we have big aspirations for it. You obviously have made a significant investment in it, but is there a huge difference in the end unit cost do you know those economics yet you know what a final produced bottle in the u.s versus china in terms of a percentage that's a great question we think that we can make plastic bottles for about half the cost as we can get them from china wow so, as i mentioned it makes a lot of sense with plastic bottles um 
steel is a different story. There are subsidies in China for steel manufacturing. Um, there's a lot more of a process with making steel. Okay. So um, that's, I, I think that we can do it for at least the same unit cost, but I, I bet that we can, as we um, scale up our manufacturing, we should be able to, to get a better cost on yeah. really everything that we make here or else we probably should not make it here well you know for me i'm thinking well the obvious obvious advantages are the lead times made in usa potentially increasing the perceived value all, all that kind of thing but to think that you could produce it for half the cost similar cost that's i'm surprised by that that's incredible is that do you say uh, because of the shipping, the size of the shipping, or is it just in the production economics at that size as well? Yes, it's uh, shipping's a big part of it with plastics. A gallon is the biggest bottle that we sell. So really, I'm speaking to our gallon size. We sell, sure. you know, all the way down to kids' Triton bottles. So you're, you're getting um, less savings there on shipping, um, but still, we're going to be able to make it for a, a better unit cost. Uh, and I, I will say that there, there's an important distinction here with mass retail, the, the volume per SKU is so great that we can really um, take advantage of economies of scale with domestic sure. manufacturing. Mm -hmm. With e-com, it's a lot harder because we spread out our sales across a lot more units. So mm -hmm. our, our strategy is to start first to support our, our physical retail business and then um, as we scale it, we, we hope to service our, our digital sales as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the average Amazon seller is probably not going to be able to manufacture uh, in the US anytime soon. But it's uh, fascinating to hear, you know, how you guys are doing it. So um, we have had I put it out on Twitter, you know, that you guys are uh, you, that you're coming on and lots of excitement. And I said, has anybody got any questions for Brian? And there were quite a few. So uh, I'd like to try and ask some of those in honor of the uh, the Twitter fam. Um, so yeah, we'll just go, go through a few of these if that's cool. The, the, the first one coming in was how did you build a community or a following for a product that doesn't lend itself to that? They did add, you know, with respect, no one is super pumped about water bottles. Um, so how have you got, because uh, your, your website, your branding is, uh, especially your imagery is so good. You know, the, the users of your products, happy faces, smiling, you can feel the, the brand, uh, you know, on your website. And how, how have you created that? It's a great question. Um, I, I get that I'm probably more excited about bottles than the average person. <laughs> yeah. uh, so first and foremost, we want to make products that is so good that you're compelled to look for us. Next time you want a water bottle, you're not searching for water, bottle, water bottles on Google or mm -hmm. Amazon. You're searching for Simple Modern. Um, if we can do that and we can keep our quality consistent, then that's our main goal. Um, we also don't want to identify our brand solely with drinkware. We want to be a brand that can support anything that your family needs. If your kids need kid needs a lunchbox, a backpack, a water bottle, if you need any of that, we want to be the, the brand that you think about. Similar to Pottery Barn, how they've expanded out from just furniture. They sell all sorts of things for the home. So doing that allows us to expand our category base and create fans of our brand not just our bottles but 
um, customers who are subscribing to our email, um, excited to see like our, our silicone baby bibs that we're about to launch or, you know, any sort of thing. So we we're trying to expand our, the scope of our brand to, to not be just one thing. And we're, we're also what, using our website, especially to try and delight our fans. Um, we're bringing in product monthly. That's either a new ornamentation of what we already have or a brand new product to give customers reasons to be looking for our launches and um, just be engaged with our brand as a whole. So I, I don't want to incite consumerism in people, but we want to serve our customers by offering things that, that they need and they want. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a really great point because early brand owners, e-commerce, uh, you know, sellers, they will think, well, I need to create community and, and this topic of community around your brand is, is often talked about. But I think as you've communicated, they're really, you know, you're not going to build a, a, a true community in the sense of everyone's going to want to talk to each other about your brand, but the community is built around good quality products and then new variations of product, new product launches, and people will become part of your brand because of those product factors, right? And so, which is a, just a good reminder for all of us, I think that it's, it's products. You know, if you're going to build a great brand, it all starts with having a great product that, that meets needs. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, if a customer, if we launch a product like a lunchbox and it's not the same quality as our drinkware, we're harming our brand. Like we might as well not even sell those launch boxes. Just throw them away. We don't want our customers to experience that because they've already bought a bottle. They buy an average lunch box. They could be just done with our brand or, you know, hopefully not this experience, but a, a bad, a bad experience with any product is, is something that devalues our brand. Yeah, for sure. Um, last question from me, then I'll stick back to the Twitter questions. Otherwise we'll never get through them all. But you, you mentioned about product quality and I'm just, you know, thinking, well, how much can you really differentiate with a water bottle? Surely you guys have competitors that try and copy what you do. Have you filed patents? What, what, what are you doing to protect the developments that you're making with product? Um, so we have IP, intellectual property, around all of our lids. We produce all of our products in-house. So uh, we have had competitors get right up to the line and, in our opinion, go over the line. And, and we've reached out to, uh, to, to brands who have done that. Um, we, we, if, if you don't hold your brand in high regard and protect it, then no one will. So you, you have to have this stuff in place. Um, we're constantly willing to disrupt ourselves. So if we can make a better product and then something we're already selling, even if it has 50,000 reviews, we need to do it or else someone else will. So an example of that is that we have, have sold a, a certain version of a tumbler um, pretty well on Amazon. We developed a new lid that we think customers are going to like better. We're able to ceramic coat it. So on the inside, it's ceramic instead of stainless steel, um, which is a better experience. And we're in the process of actually swapping out our old version of it for the new version. It's painful. You lose a ton of reviews. <laughs> Uh, yeah. but if you, if you just like have your, your hands closed and you're not willing to disrupt yourselves, then eventually you're not going to be relevant anymore. So, um, we're constantly launching new things. Um, competitors are imitating us 
with ornamentations. We've seen, we, we launched a bunch of two-tone colors on Amazon two years ago. They did awesome. Um, 20 other brands came, came in with the exact same colors. Ours, our performance dropped off because of that. We need to find the new colors that are going to um, drive our sales in the future. We can't hold on to the old ones. So yeah. it's a constant process of, uh, of iteration and, and IP and um, not, not devaluing your brand with sales too much. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. So many questions I want to ask. I'm going to move on to the next Twitter question. Um, how did you decide, because I've seen, I don't know if it was you or Mike mentioned on Twitter about your starting budget around 200K. Um, how did you decide to deploy that budget to test the market? You mentioned testing various products. What was the theory? Yeah, we uh, first used that money, as I mentioned earlier, to, to test as many, cast a wide net, test as many different products as possible. Once we select hydration, we then focused all of our capital on hydration. Um, so 200K sounds like a lot, but whenever you, you know, tie it all up in capital, it, it goes pretty quick. So yeah. um, even to this day, we're having to be very strategic with our capital and, and put it in the highest return places. Yeah, definitely. Good. And then uh, another one, did you always plan to give dollars to charity or did that come over time and how did you make it work with, you know, high growth, potentially low margins at times? How did that work? Um, I, I'm glad this question was asked. It's actually what we're the most passionate about. Our mm -hmm. um, mission statement as a company is that we exist to, to give generously. Um, so that could be giving of our time. Um, of our energy, of our financial resources, of, you know, our assets. But specifically with money, we, we don't believe that money is going to make us happy in the end. Mm -hmm. um, we believe that we're here to be relational and not transactional. We, we think that um, the purpose of our lives is to invest it in people that we know, our families, our friends, and we can use money as a way to actually grow that as our main mission um so and, and really generosity does something else that's this key for someone who has a lot of money um i think most people you know with a lot of money they they both want to protect their money and they want more money even you know mm. no matter how much they have they want more and yeah. we don't want to be um, slaves to our money and we don't want to be insecure about keeping our money or growing it. So generosity like opens our hands up and um, acknowledges that money is not what makes us happy. If you give it to someone else, then it just frees you up um, to not be focused on that is the purpose of your life. So mm. we found that to be like very empowering uh, money can be very impactful for other people who are experiencing injustices or, or employees. We want to invest in personally. Um, we can use our resources. We provide lunches every day at our office. Um, we uh, have brought in a, uh, an, a thought leader for leadership, um, Jeremy Kubitschek, to talk to the whole company. Um, we want to invest in our people because Ultimately, we, we view that as more important, even than our, our bottom line. Um, I, I'm being very long-winded here, but I think it's really important. No, it's good. I, the other important thing about us is we're not, 
we're not a, we need to sell this company in five years um, mm. strategy. We don't have any plans to sell the company. And so that takes a lot of pressure off. Like as co-founders, we don't have to worry about scaling up the business to a certain valuation by, you know, 2025. We can be focused on um, just investing money in the best areas, investing in our people. Um, so profits are very important. Um, you can't grow without profits. And, you know, they, we, we love the challenges of growing a business and we're, we're very achievement focused, but it's just for a different reason. So mm. that's the kind of the long answer. Um, but yes, we, we always plan on giving at least 10% away. We've actually even given some ownership away to donor advised funds. So part of the company is actually owned by charity at this point. And as the profits get bigger, we get excited because that 10% can be much bigger. So in terms of how we got to work with low margins, is it's really hard. We, we sacrifice growth to be able to do it, um, but it's, it's worth it. And generosity, we, we don't, we're not generous to make the company grow more, but I will say that if, um, if you're generous with your manufacturer and you fly over to China and you throw a big banquet every year, then they are going to respond to that and they are going to make excellent product for you. Um, they're going to, to perform at a high level and you know, that, that, that can be true everywhere. Generosity is, mm -hmm. is really, it stands out. People respond to it. So I think in that way, like the, the, the generosity mission has helped our company, even though we've lost 10% of our profits, um, in terms of like our investment base. Mm. Well, the world of the generous gets larger and larger. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's no one. That's good. No one that you're generous with is going to receive that poorly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, no, for sure. And I think these are incredible business principles that you know, people don't often talk about because it's, uh, you know, a lot of people are focused on what they can get out of business rather than what they can contribute to, to the world. So I think that's, as you say, you've given a long answer and you said at the start of the answer, it's an important one. And uh, I think it's clear to see that it's uh, it's a foundational thing that's added so much strength to your business. So it's great to, um, yeah, great to hear more about it. Um, if you were to another question from Twitter, if you were to start again, maybe with a lower budget or similar budget, if you were to start in 2022, how would you go about it? Would it be different? Whew, that's an excellent question. I, I, I think our principles would be the same. We'd want to test um, into the product that, that we want to choose. Hydration is a lot more competitive now than it was in 2015. I don't want to be mm -hmm. insensitive to that fact. But... I, whenever you're creating a brand, you do not need to create an entirely new product. In fact, if you do that, that might mean that your, your product is not a good idea if it doesn't already exist. Um, yeah. But what you can do is you can find the biggest flaw in a product that has a big market. And if you can solve that problem and, and create a better product, then it is possible to come in and um, compete in an area where it's like a red ocean there's tons of competition so yeah but i don't want to minimize the challenge of it we we feel with, with some of our product launches that there's just a lot of competition now so i, I definitely get that yeah for sure 
No, it's good. Really, really insightful. Um, I'm obviously conscious of time because I feel like I could sit here and ask you questions all day, but I did say we would try and, uh, you know, finish up within the hour. So, well, we've um, yeah, got a few more minutes, uh, at least until my kid busts through the door. I, I've got to- <laughs> Okay, cool. Okay, cool. Because the the last, I mean, there's two sort of maybe brief, who who knows, a couple of things just to do with licensing and then, you know, co-founders, because we've got some people that would listen and that's a big uh, dynamic there. But in terms of the licensing, you guys are doing incredible with that. How does the average e-commerce brand owner get into licensing with Disney, NFL, NBA, etc.? Um, so licensing, we had learned, is... It's like you're outside of a castle that has a moat with piranhas in it, and it's got archers. It's heavily fortified. It is so hard to get in that castle. But if you get in that castle, then all of a sudden you're king. Like, no one no one else can get in. You're totally protected. It's an amazing moat. Um, so the way that we broke in to licensing was through a local license. Um, the, uh, the other co-founders and I live in Norman, Oklahoma. The University of Oklahoma um, is our, our local university. And so we were able to get locally licensed with them. Um, and I, I think we also got the local license with Oklahoma State. We then were able to pitch to Sam's Club um, a program, a summer program for collegiate licensed tumblers this was super early on in our business. We actually had never made this product before because it would have been illegal because we weren't licensed for all the universities. Um, so we pitched this to Sam's Club. Um, we're, we're still amazed that they said yes to it. Um, they, in, uh, I think it was in 2016, later in the year 2016, hydration was just on fire as a category. They, they saw a fit for it. Um, the problem was we weren't licensed with NCAA, <laughs> but we got Sam's Club to say yes to POs. We then took those POs from Sam's Club to the NCAA and said, hey, you, you want some, uh, some licensing royalties? We got them. <laughs> so nice. we were able to basically leverage two organizations like, that we were not partnered with at, the, at that point in time together to, to get... Um, you know, on board with both sides. So getting in the door with Collegiate was was important. Um, we started selling that product on Amazon. Um, there was not, there was a hole for vacuum insulated Collegiate tumblers on Amazon. Turns out that those are amazing gifts. We sell about 50% of our fan shop product in December. Um, and we sell a lot of it in December. The rest of the year is a little bit tough. Um, but we were able to then show the sales data on Amazon to other licensing bodies and say, um, really, I guess other licensing bodies, they want to know how you can add incremental sales without harming their other relationships. If you're just going to take, um, if you're going to dilute another one of their brands, then you, you, they're not going to license you. So we were able to show them that we can add incremental sales selling their product on Amazon no one else was doing it. We were doing it the best. Um, so that's really how we got on board with the NFL. Um, we have the NBA, NHL. And also there, there's other connections that have, have been helpful too. Uh, mm. But really, you know, you have to add value to them or else they will not say yes. And with Disney, um, 
that's the biggest license. They're they're big, bigger than all the fan shop licenses combined. Um, it, it really was a similar pitch to them that we can grow your business on Amazon. We're the number one seller in kids' bottles. Um, you know, predating Disney, putting your your uh, branding on it is is only going to make it better. And now Disney's doing more than half of our kids' uh, bottle sales. Wow. So. That's incredible. Kind of a domino effects. Like if you're playing a long game, you just got to think about how to get in the door with one. And then if you can do well with that one, it opens doors for the others. Yeah. Great insight though, in terms of leverage. That's a great strategy to set it up on both sides to prove it can be done. It's uh, yeah. Good thinking that. I love it. Good. Okay. So last sort of one then, just in terms of co-founder roles, because, uh, you know, coming into the company, there would have been uh, lots of dynamics going on there. Different people had different ideas. How have you managed to, over the, you know, years, maintain a really good working relationship as, you know, co-founders in the business? It's an excellent question. Um, we were lucky. We, we were able to co-found a business organically with relationships that had, a decade plus of history behind it. Yeah. Um, and so we, we knew what we were getting with each other. As I mentioned earlier, we respect and admire each other and we have the same vision for our lives in terms of what is, what is our purpose for our lives. Um, so we, we have a wider ownership group outside of the co-founders and those are also individuals with um, rich relational history, cultural alignment, um, everyone knows that we're not, we're not trying to sell this thing. Um, we're not even necessarily trying to cash flow it. We're just trying to grow it and use it as an instrument for impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that in itself takes pressure off. Like we're not, um, feeling the pressure of an, an exit date. Um, we're, we have several values like when, for example, is that we view mistakes as tuition. Um, everyone makes mistakes. We know it. Mistakes are good because you can learn from them. Much like the uh, small fortune I gave um, the University of Oklahoma for a diploma, um, if I make a mistake that cost us uh, $20,000, then I can either learn from that and grow or, um, you know, we can just not take advantage of that. So. We use mistakes as tuition, um, and that's a really empowering, freeing mindset to have. It helps to reduce tension in the organization. Um, so, yeah, like I said, if, if you're somebody who's looking for a co-founder, um, I, I think the, the takeaway that I have from my experience is that alignment on um, core values is essential. If you're not aligned in what your purpose is, um, even if it's not the same purpose that we have, you need to have that with your co-founders, and um, you, you need to you need to co-found with somebody that you want to be around and spend your days around because you are then handcuffed to that person. So, um, yeah, I I think I'm spoiled because of my experience. Uh, but I, I do think it's possible for you to, to seek a co-founder and find somebody who's going to be an encouragement in your life and not a, a drain on your life. Definitely. No, that's inspiring. The, the final thing I was going to ask you is what's the plan, you know, in, in the future, but it sounds like more of the same. 
It's it's more of the same. Um, we're as I mentioned, we're we're in an ambitious group, um, or we're stupid for taking on as much as we're taking on with manufacturing and um, scaling up our, our retail business. But um, the the plans are to grow internationally, as we mentioned. Um, I, I I would love to, and, and maybe you could help with this bid. Um, grow our our European distribution with Amazon. Um, manufacturing's a, a big one. Uh, we want to grow our licensing base. There are licensing partners that, that we want to acquire, like Warner Brothers and Universal. Um, there, there's a few universities out there that we still need to get. Like you, you can't sell Notre Dame licensed product unless you make it domestically. So okay. uh, we, we think we'll get that one eventually. Um, but yeah, we're at the point where uh, we added Walmart. We're scaling up with them this year, next year. Outside of international growth, um, there's not many big players left. We're not in Costco yet. And we don't necessarily need to be everywhere. There are brands like Yeti and, and Nike who are actually retreating to their own website because they have more leverage there and they have a, a, a customer base that's known. Um, so I, I think on top of the things I mentioned, becoming better brand marketers is a thing that we have not quite figured out yet in that uh, we can actually layer that on as we start to produce cash to um, turn Simple Modern into a brand that's known um, in some homes to be no being known in every home and being a just mm -hmm. globally known brand. So yeah. ironically, we haven't been able to, to really use that lever um, to this point, but I think by the time we've, we've really kind of won the distribution war, we can pile that on as like further fuel to entrench the brand. I just think it's funny, you know, millions of units in sales a year, and you're saying you don't do brand marketing very well. I, lo I love, <laughs> I love the humility. It's, uh, it's, uh, we're all, we're all privileged to be sitting here learning from you guys. And genuinely, thank you so much for a, the, you know, the Twitter stuff. It's really, really insightful. B coming on to the show. Really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, where is the best place for people to continue to follow the journey? Simple, modern, and, and yourself. Oh, I appreciate you asking. Uh, my Twitter handle is jbrianporter, Brian with a Y. Um, and, and really our goal with Twitter is to be exporters of what we learn, um, what our culture is. We want to expand our reach with those things and be influential because we, we think that the way that we're doing business is, is really the, the way that uh, business can be um, purposeful and impactful for the world. So we want to spread yeah. that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a question before we hop off, Ben. I, I'm not mm. the only person who, who I don't know, had the market cornered on being able to uh, give wisdom. So this is your, your 31st podcast. I, I want to know what, what your biggest takeaway is, what your biggest learning is after doing 31 podcasts. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question, and you're the first person to uh, to ask me a question. So it's uh, again, I think shows why you're building such a great business because that's just the nature of who you are. But no, I, I think the thing for me is that nobody so far that I've interviewed thinks they know it all. I think that a successful entrepreneur realizes how little in the grand scheme of things they truly do know and that the journey of entrepreneurship is a daily journey of learning. And I think, again, without sort of um, meaning to 
you know suck up to you too much it's like you you've sat here and, and exemplified that and you know you're doing the most sales of anybody i've interviewed and you know you're asking me questions you're talking about continuing the learning journey you know you're talking more about what you don't know than you do know and i, I think that is the key isn't it? it doesn't matter how big you get there's always things to learn there's always a bigger impact you can have and uh, yeah i think that's that's a huge key i love it Th- thank you for sharing that i'm sure the, the first podcast was daunting and, and by 30 you've <laughs> You've you probably learned a lot. Um, Definitely. I appreciate you, you having me on. It was an honor to be on with you. No, thank you. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. And uh, definitely we'll leave the link to your Twitter in the show notes in the description as well so people can check that out. Um, Brian, it has been an honor and a privilege. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Well, what an episode that was. Just incredible story, incredible people, incredible business. So uh, make sure that you are following them on Twitter, both him, Brian, uh, on Twitter. We'll leave the link to down in the description, in the show notes, and also for his partner, Mike. And uh, they're they're tweeting just insane value all the time. So make sure you do check it out. Uh, If you've liked this episode, make sure you do subscribe because we do have great guests on every single week. And if you do get a chance, please do leave a review because it really does help us be seen get more great guests on ultimately help you on your journey of building a breakthrough e-commerce brand all right we will see you in the next episode real soon